Romans chapter 12. <laughs> we'll start at verse 1. But first, let's ask God to come and help us. Father, it's more of a challenge after lunch than before lunch, and you're able to give us wakefulness and alertness and spiritual receptiveness because the Holy Spirit is very powerful. He is God. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, and therefore we have high hopes that you will be here to help me be clear and engaging and spiritually led and to help these folks listen and hear and respond according to truth. Guard us from the evil one, the blinder, the deceiver, the murderer. Guard us from our own flesh and grant that there would be an unusual transaction in the truth Your word is truth. Sanctify us now. By it we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read verses 1 and 2, and we'll pick up where we left off at the will of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, all those great, glorious mercies summed up in chapters 1 to 11, to present your bodies... As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So not being conformed to the world, a whole stream of biblical passages on that and becoming all things to all people, the indigenous and the pilgrim principle and the difficulty of knowing what's the will of God from hour to hour in our lives. So... Let's focus for a few minutes on the term, the will of God. Discern what is the will of God. The Bible uses the term will of God in more than one sense. And there are two main ones. And we need to ask which is implied here. And just knowing which the two are, I think, will help you handle many questions that come up concerning the will of God. The two big meanings of the will of God, we could call the sovereign will of God, which is everything that comes to pass. That is, he governs all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. And the other one is, different names, the moral will of God, the will of command, now, let me give you a few texts for each of those, and then we'll ask which one is, is going on here. First of all, the sovereign will of God. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he's asking for one thing, and he's submitting himself to what God decrees. That's his sovereign will. God brings about what he wills. Or Acts 4.27. Truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand or your plan had predestined to take place. So God's plan, his will had predestined that something happened, namely that Jesus be crucified. So Herod did his part, Pilate did his part, the Gentile soldiers did their part, Israel crying, crucify him, crucify him, did their part, and the will of God happened, and most of it was sin. Right? Pilate sinned, Herod sinned, the soldiers sinned, the Jewish people sinned, and brought about the will of God, the crucifixion of the Son. So the will of God clearly embraces all that happens, including evil. Let's linger here a minute, because people, if you can, if you can handle Acts 4, 27 and 28, the two verses I just read, you have a paradigm for handling so many problems people bring up concerning the sovereignty of God. If you reject God's sovereign control of evil, you reject the cross. Don't you? The cross was the most evil event in history. To murder the Son of God is that of which there is nothing worse. And it was the will of God from eternity. Anybody want to ask a question right there? I mean, that just seems so obvious to me that I wonder how how people can not accept it. And yet you may see something I don't see. I really am. I'm willing to stop here and have you ask a question about that. But I won't press you to. I, I want you to to feel the. To embrace the sovereign will of God over all that is, is not a marginal thing. The brother who said that Luther said to Rasmus, this is big, this is huge, was not wrong because the cross is at stake. The gospel is at stake. If you believe that God loved you in sending his son to be murdered for you, you have to believe that he ordained that sin would come to pass for your salvation. He didn't send his son into the world and say, now I wonder what will become of him. He sent his son to be murdered. Every time Jesus predicted it, he predicted it as evil. He will be handed over. He will be spit upon. He will be beaten. He will be crucified. All of that was sin ordained by God for your salvation. 
Another one. First Peter three, seven. I'm just giving you random verses on this first kind of will of God. First Peter three, 17. It is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Meaning sometimes it is God's will that you suffer for doing good, which means being sinned against. It's wrong for people to treat you that way. And it is God's will that they do. Or another one, Ephesians 1, 11. In him, Christ we have obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things are worked according to the counsel of his will. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father in heaven. Matthew ten twenty nine. The lot is cast in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. That's amazing. It just couldn't get any more detailed. Every roll of the dice in Las Vegas is governed by God. You lose, you win. Hopefully you don't play. <laughs> by God's decree. Proverbs 16, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Oh, that's enough. There are many other texts. The first meaning of the will of God is God's sovereign, willing all things, including evil. Now, just a little theological What to call it? Conviction that you need in order to worship him. In this regard, you have to be able to say God. Does not sin when he wills that sin be. Can you handle handle that? If your brain can handle that, you probably should reject what I've just said. You'll be rejecting, I think, all those texts. But I don't want you to say God is a sinner. I would rather you say what you just said is wrong because I believe God's not a sinner. Than that you say what you just said is right and therefore God is a sinner. God is not a sinner. God is holy and just, dwells in unapproachable light. In him is light, and there is no darkness in him. So that when he wills darkness, like the crucifixion of his son, he is not sinning in willing that sin happen. You come up with statements like that just because you read the Bible. You don't learn that in any theologian. I didn't anyway. I just try to make sense out of my Bible. And I find that God willed the death of his son. And there wasn't anything more horrible in the world, more worse sin than the death of Jesus. And so my God rules the world, including all the evil that happens in it. And he's not evil in ruling evil. 
However, there is a second kind of will of God spoken of in the Bible that is very different and causes people to wonder, well, how is the first one true? And the second one is, let's call it, I think the best name for it is the will of command. What God commands you to do is often not the same as what he decrees that you will do. He says, be perfect as my father is perfect. Jesus, Matthew 548. And he does not ordain that you be perfect. Otherwise, you'd be perfect. The reason I know that you would be perfect without compromising your will is that someday he's going to do that for you. Not very long hence for some of you. Maybe me. The moment you die, you'll never sin again. Isn't that good news? It is to me. Or the moment Jesus comes, you'll never sin again. Now, how can that be? Why don't you just stop sinning right now? Because God does not do to you what he's going to do to you at that last day. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed and will never sin again. And guess what? We will not be robots. So if he could do it then, he could do it now. And he doesn't. But he commands you not to sin. So his will of command and his will of decree are not the same. So here's a few texts on this one. Jesus said, Matthew 7:21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what's the will of the Father in that verse? Everything? Can't be everything. And everybody go to heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. He'll go to heaven. So there are those who do the will of God and those who don't do the will of God. So clearly, will of God here means something different than the other will of God, namely everything that happens. This is the will of command. This is the Ten Commandments. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is God telling us what we ought to do. Thou shalt not murder is God's will of command. Decree, murder my son. There's the clearest place to see it. The Ten Commandments are the will of God, the will of command. Don't murder. Decree, my son is into the world in order to be murdered. I will bring it to pass. Another one, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Clear as day. The will of God for you is your sanctification. That's not his will of decree. That's his will of command. Another one. First Thessalonians 5, 18. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you? Give thanks in all circumstances. You don't always do that, but you should. That's the will of God. One more. First John 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that's not the will of decree by which everything comes to pass. That's the will of command. So there they are. The will of God is that by which he does all things. And the will of God is sometimes used as his command. What ought to be done by humans if they were morally upright. Which one is meant in verse 2? Of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. And the answer is, it's the will of command. It's not the sovereign will. And we know that because God doesn't want us to know the sovereign will often. He tells us in, where is it, in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord. So he doesn't mean for you to know his sovereign will. This afternoon, 10,000 things will happen to you that you do not know are going to happen cumulatively. And he doesn't want you to know. He means for us to meet life as it comes. Almost always a few situations. He'll want you to discern ahead of time precisely what's coming. That would be a prophetic insight of some kind where the Lord communicates to you that a person wearing a red shirt is going to be on a certain corner holding a book in his hand and you, he's, you're supposed to talk to him or something like that. But that's not the way life works ordinarily. So I don't think he means... If our minds were transformed and renewed, we would be able to discern everything that's coming to us this afternoon. That's not at all what's going on here. What's going on here is God has a will of what's good and acceptable, right and beautiful and God glorifying. And you need to discern what that is and bring your life into conformity to it. Now, there are three stages of this happening. Let me give you those three stages of, of uh, the will of God in this sense. First, the will of God as the will of command, which we're to discern here with the renewed mind, is what is told us in the Bible. The safest, most authoritative in fact, the only authoritative place to learn the will of God is in the Bible. Anybody comes along and tells you they know the will of God for your life and it doesn't jive with the Bible, they don't. You measure the will of God for your life, the choices you make, by the authoritative revealed will in the Bible. Second, the application of biblical truths or biblical principles of the will of God to various situations becomes the will of God, which are not in the Bible. 
For example, the Bible will not tell you what person to marry. It won't tell you what car to drive or buy. It won't tell you whether to own a home or to rent. It won't tell you where and if to take a vacation. It won't tell you what cell phone plan to buy. It won't tell you what brand of orange juice you should be drinking. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions week in and week out that you make that are not prescribed in the Bible. And you need to ask the Lord, help me to be so transformed in the renewing of my mind that I think biblically about vacations and biblically about phone plans and biblically about cars and houses and clothing and all the choices that I make so that when I contemplate how the Bible relates to this choice, I will be able to take into account all the factors that are biblically relevant and all the ways that biblical truth comes to bear and infer a choice which will be the will of God. That's the second step. Here's a third one. It's the one that we generally do not think about, and it's by far the most pervasive. Namely, I'm picking a percentage out of the blue. Could be higher, could be a little lower. 95% of your behavior, you do not premeditate. Meaning, as you walk in and out here, as you go to lunch, all kinds of behaviors are happening. Where you look, what you say, tone of voice, how you stand, what food you take. Well, you usually think about that. <laughs> most of the most of the action of your life is unpremeditated. So years ago, when our college group. Toshavim, it was called then. Um, asked me to come address them. This is my, my first or second year at Bethlehem. So 1981-82. And they said, talk to college students about the will of God. I think I really surprised them and spent almost all of my time talking about the 95% of their lives that they do not premeditate. Because they thought I would talk about how do you find a wife and know which one she is and how do you find a job and know which one it is and how do you choose a school and how do you choose a place to live. And good grief, that is such an infinitesimal part of your life. I mean, big implications who you marry, but it only takes you a little while to figure that out and then you live with it. (laughs) Year two and then done then it's done. But good grief, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, there's an avalanche of actions pouring out of your life which you don't think about. Most of your life, you do not pause and say, okay, biblical principle here, ten factors taken into account here, principles, factors, choice. You couldn't live that way. Nobody can live that way. There are too many decisions to be made. Just think of all my decisions I'm making right now. These hands, they're always doing stuff. I don't think about them at all. They are totally out of my control. But they might be helpful or hurtful, depending on what I do with them. And 
The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And my guess is out of the abundance of the heart, there come some gestures that shouldn't or should be there, depending on what's going on in here. So on this third stage, that's where I spend most of my time. Because I think that's what this verse is about, mainly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing. Now, that's a little bit of an over translation there, I think, that you may discern what is the will of God. I think God wants us to have such a mind and such a heart that the 95 percent of our lives that we do not premeditate is godly. Beautiful, helpful, loving, merciful, holy. Now, if you were to ask me why, why, if it's premeditated, I mean, unpremeditated, it's just spontaneous, it's just happening. Why do you think that it falls within the category of will of God? Wouldn't will of God mean you will it and the will is conforming to God's will? And so you can call it will of God because you've contemplated what God wills for you to do and then you've done it. And if it's spontaneous, well, maybe it's not even in the category of will of God. And here's the reason I think it is. The Bible says things like don't be angry. Or at least don't be excessively angry. Don't be prideful. Don't covet. Don't be anxious. Don't be jealous. Don't envy. And guess what? Anger, pride, covetousness, anxiety, and jealousy and envy are not decisions I make. They happen to me. I don't hear my wife say something about my behavior being unhelpful and contemplate, shall I get angry (laughs) or not? Would anger be helpful here or not? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm angry or no, I'm not angry. It doesn't happen. That's not life. I just get angry. And and the Bible says, you shouldn't have gotten angry. Spontaneous behavior can be wrong. Wrong, wrong, not the will of God. Same thing with pride. You decide to be proud? No, you're just proud. Covetousness. Do you decide to want that thing you shouldn't have? I just, should I want that or not want that? It's okay to want that, I want that. Wants don't work like that. They just are there. They come out of this. Which means our big challenge in life and why I'm taking almost three of our precious five sessions on two verses is because if we get verse two down, everything's down. If you can discern the will of God by being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you got it. Well, I'm done with verses one and two, even though there is lots more. That could be said, believe it or not, there is. So we're going to move on to 
verses 3 to 8. I think verse 3 is most remarkable, probably one of the most important verses in the chapter, if you think about it the way I've been thinking about it anyway. Um, he's not leaving behind the issue of the new mind. In fact, I think what you'll see in verse 3 is that he's giving a, an illustration, an explanation of the way the new mind thinks. Let's read it. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think. Isn't it remarkable that having just told us that we need renewed minds in verse two, renewed minds, what he takes up in verse three is a certain thinking. That's what the mind does. It thinks not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Oh, man, that's big. Of all the things he could have gone to next. He's just called us not to be conformed to the world, but to navigate our way through the indigenous pilgrim complexities of life by getting a renewed mind so that we can intuit and discern and approve Will of God, sometimes reflecting over it, sometimes being spontaneous. But because of a newness in here, we are walking in a way pleasing to the Lord. Having said that, where does he go next? He goes to the way you think about yourself. If he's going to illustrate something with this new mind and the way it thinks, isn't it amazing? That what he grasps to tackle right off the bat is, all right, what does this new mind do when it thinks about itself? That's amazing. That's just so unbelievably up to date. (laughs) That Paul would tackle this. That he would be concerned with the very thing that kills America. Self. Self-views, self-concepts, self-esteem, self-self-self-self-self-magazines called self. And he tackles this first after setting up the renewal. In fact, did you notice that the structure of verse 3 is the same as the negative positive structure of verse 2? Verse 2 says, don't be conformed to the world, and then positively, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now look at the way verse 3 is structured. By the grace given to me, I say to you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, as each is given a measure of faith. 
So don't think this way. Think this way. Parallels don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. And evidently, the hint would be the way the world thinks about itself is not good. And I want you to know what that is. And I don't want you to do it that way. I want you to think about yourself differently than the way the world thinks. So what what is that? Let's read it again. By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But now here's his alternative to a worldly, excessive, high view of self. What's the alternative? It's a very surprising one. Think with sober judgment about yourself. Okay, that's obvious. Not drunken judgment, but responsible, clear, sober-minded judgment. But more specific, Paul. Can you be more specific? And he is. He says, think about yourself each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. (laughs) What an amazing man. Think about yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's simply mind-boggling. I mean, it boggled my mind. I I spent hours and hours trying to figure that out. What does that mean? Think about myself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to me. Think about myself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to me. That's not transparent. <laughs> wasn't to me anyway. Maybe I'm maybe hard-headed and you just get it in a flash. Um, but here's, here's what I think he's saying, and then we'll try to unpack it uh, with four things he accomplishes by saying it this way. I think he's saying... If you want to measure yourself, take stock about yourself. Do it by making your faith the criterion of your measurement. Isn't that what's implied in the word according, according to? So think about yourself soberly and do it in accord in accord with, by the measure of, by the standard of the measure of faith that God has assigned you. So, how should we say it? To answer that, what's the essence of faith? What is faith? Faith is, and we would all say this, I think, looking away from ourselves to another. It becomes really paradoxical, right? Take stock of yourself using your faith as the measuring rod of yourself. And what is faith? It's looking away from self to another. Looking to Christ. Christ as Savior. Christ as Lord. Christ as treasure. Christ as value. Christ as all, Paul says. Christ is all. So your faith, the degree that you have from God, is that you are looking away from this to him 
And you're finding him as your guide and him as your savior and him as your Lord and him as your treasure and your value. He is where your faith is going. Now make that, that direction, the measure of this. That's revolutionary. That is so revolutionary. Here's the picture I have. He says, okay, there you are standing in front of a mirror. There you are. Okay, if you want to stand in front of a mirror, I'll tell you what to do. Don't stand there like the world does, thinking about what you see highly. Rather, make your faith the measure of what you see. However, you know what happens when faith stands in front of a mirror? It becomes a window. And on the other side is Christ. So make the measure of yourself, the measure of your seeing and savoring, loving, delighting in, trusting in, enjoying, being satisfied by, embracing Christ. If you want to have significance, embrace Christ as the one who is infinitely significant to you. If you want to have value, embrace Christ as the infinitely valuable. If you want to have esteem, embrace Christ as infinitely worthy of esteem. So say it another way. Our worth consists in treasuring the worth of Christ. Our value consists in treasuring the value of Christ. Our esteem consists in our esteem for Christ. Our significance consists in our savoring the infinite significance of Christ. So I think verse 3 is simply an amazing verse. That tells you that the new mind, the main feature of the renewed mind, is that if it's going to contemplate anything like self, it contemplates it in a radically Christ-centered way, a radically faith-based way, and says, all right, self What are you doing? What worth do you have? What significance do you have? What value do you have? Answer, I'm looking at Jesus and he has infinite value. I'm looking at Jesus and he has infinite worth. I'm looking at Jesus and embracing him and trusting him and counting on him. He's my my life. Mind-boggling to me. I want so much. To be like it, I, I think he's simply changing the categories on us so that we don't get bogged down in the disputes about self-esteem. We're supposed to be identified. Our self, to be thought of soberly, should be thought of highly to the degree that it's thinking highly of Christ. 
which is paradoxical because if it's thinking highly of Christ, it isn't thinking much of self at all. The beauty of the self is its self-forgetfulness in Christ. We are made to make much of Christ. We're not made to make much of ourselves. Now, there are reasons for why he said this, why he does it this way. Um, Where's my page? I skipped a page here. Let me give you several reasons for why Paul does it this way. First, Paul makes faith the measure of thinking soberly about ourselves because faith is a gift of God. And since it's a gift of God, it obliterates boasting. So not only does faith have the nature of looking away, faith by its nature looks away from self, embraces Christ. But faith is a gift. The very thing that in its nature looks away to Christ is a gift. So our pride is is knocked out with a double blow. The first blow is faith by its nature looks away from self to Christ and finds our joy and value and esteem and significance there. And the other blow is, and guess what? Your ability to do that is a gift from God and therefore don't boast in that either. That's what's there at the end of verse three, isn't it? Each according to the measure of faith, God has assigned. Whatever measure of faith you have right now, God has given it to you. He wants you to grow and have more, but you didn't make what you have. He granted that gift to you. Another reason for saying it this way, I think, is that it produces a humble interdependence Because he says he gives to all of us different measures of faith. That's sticky. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So God assigns different measures of faith. And Paul chooses to say that. I mean, just think if you were writing this, would you write this way? He brings in all these Things It makes us scratch our head. Paul, is this helpful to know? <laughs> Doesn't this just cause our brains to short circuit that, okay, not only is faith a gift, but it's given in different measures to different people. This is kind of sovereign. and <laughs> It just seems so heavy handed over the church. And he says them, and he just says them. And he's inspired by God. He, this is not stupid writing. This is God talking. These are things God wants us to think about. So my, my answer to why he says it this way is that precisely 
in pointing out that God ordains diversity of measures of faith. He must believe that as we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, find ways to live in harmony and unity with one another, one body in Christ, as he's going to say in the next verse, as it is one body, we have many members, as we live in this diversity, he gets more glory. Christ is more honored than if all had exactly the same measure of faith. If there were total uniformity in the church, and your and my faith were precisely equal on every point, because God always does things with equity, that would be not as glorious as if he can manage by his spirit to take all the diversity and cause us to come together and nobody to feel proud because of a greater measure of faith and nobody to feel despairing because of a lower measure of faith. But the person with the lower measure admiring the person with the higher measure and wanting to grow into it, and the person with the greater measure compassionate and getting their arms around the people with less faith and drawing them in and lifting them up, and that unusual kind of blending of diversities that make a more beautiful community than if everybody were precisely the same and we just clonk all lined up. God is really into diversity. He really is. Amazingly, and on many, many scores. Um, There's so much more to say about that diversity of faith. Let me just look and see much I want to pass over. I'm going to pass over all of it. I think that's enough on verse on verse three. This verse four. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The only thing I'm going to say there as we move quickly over it. Is this in saying that we are individually, this is in verse five near the end, individually members of one another. One of the amazing implications of that, because he's talking individually now, this is not just kind of a vague, hazy, big body picture like the whole church is the body. This is individually members of one another. I think that means something like he's got a picture of a body. Members are like hands, fingers, toes and so on. And to be members of one another means this this finger being part of the body is part of this finger. It's all one thing. And the implication of that is if you want to find out your gifts, your identity, your usefulness in the body of Christ, it probably is not a good idea for you to try to disconnect and go to the woods and pray about it. Like, okay, gonna find my gift. 
this connect, this finger goes to the woods and says, what am I? Who am I? What am I good for? And this poor finger out on a stump in the woods just looks like a larvae. The, the best way, the best way is to start doing what you feel like doing by faith, by faith, because that's what it's going to say. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. You got that proportion of faith again. So measure of faith. Up there in verse 3, proportion of faith down here in verse 6. So this little finger says, okay, I'm not sure what I'm good for, but the best way to find out what I'm good for is not to disconnect, run away, have a little prayer time with God and have divine revelation that I'm a finger, but rather just start doing what you feel like doing. I mean, I I think spiritual gifts are basically um, not only but mainly natural endowments supercharged by faith with the Holy Spirit to become spiritually effective in transmitting grace. So take teaching, for example. Somebody says, do you have the gift of teaching? Now, a person without any Christian faith at all might be an absolutely stunning teacher. English teacher, chemistry teacher, driving instructor, whatever. Amazing gifts, natural, common grace gifts that make him able to explain things clearly, perceptive about the questions people are asking, so he answers them before they ask them. And, oh, people come out of his classes and the lights went on everywhere in the subject. Now, That is not a spiritual gift of teaching. Because a spiritual gift is a use of something to transmit spiritual reality. To transmit grace. 1 Peter 4.10 describes what spiritual gifts are. Might be good just to read 1 Peter 4.10. I'll read it. I'll read it to you. I should have it memorized, but it doesn't come. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you have a gift, the function of it is stewarding grace. So this little finger is supposed to say, Lord, you have given me very much grace. You've saved me. You've taught me a few things. You've encouraged me. You've given me hope. And I just want to be a means of that happening to other people. And then you just start doing what you like to do. Some like to teach. Some like to visit. Some like to talk. Some like to work with their hands. And you start doing it. And if it's a spiritual gift, grace gets mediated. People in the vicinity of that behavior start getting help. They start getting encouragement. And then they give you some feedback and suddenly you know who you are. 
So people come to me, you know, shake my hand at the end of a service. So I'm new in your church. I'd like to plug in and teach. <laughs> I said, well, here's what I think you should do. This would be a normal route. Get into a small group and start blessing the socks off of people with your insight. And you know what will happen? If you've got the gift of teaching, they'll see it. And pretty soon you'll be the leader. And you'll be leading a small group. And guess what? That small group will grow. It'll be two or three. People start recognizing that. And they'll give you a Sunday school class. And then that, soon you may be an elder someday or something like that. You don't just come in and say, I'm teaching. This little finger comes in and says, I just want to help. Where can I help? Get into a small group. Be who you are. People will see. And they'll recognize. And they'll carry you along. Man, I. Crucial years in my life, 68, 69, 70, 71, 22, 23, 24, five years old. Because I went, went to seminary, very nervous, not able to speak in front of a group, and said, what am I doing here? All I do is love the Bible. I just love the Word of God. I don't have a clue how I can use it. I don't know how, pe- how to bless people. I just love the Bible. I hope someday there might be some way I could use the Bible to bless people. But I don't Is it missionary? Is it teacher? Is it writer? Is it teach English in high school and just be good Bible-saturated lover of kids? What should I do? And I didn't know. So, being a little finger, the way I was, my first term... Second term, actually, I went to John McClure at Lake Avenue Congregational Church. And I said, John, you, you oversee these hundreds of kids. Uh, would you try me somewhere with kids? Because maybe I could do something there. And he said, yeah, we need a seventh grade Sunday school teacher. Would you be willing? I said, sure. I worked my tail off four hours every Saturday preparing lessons best I could for seventh grade boys. He did that for a year. And he came to me and he said, ninth grade needs a Sunday school teacher. Would you go up to the ninth grade next year? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So I did that. I worked as hard as I could. What your hand finds to do, you do it with all your might. I'm feeling like maybe I can teach. Maybe I could be helpful this way. Be a Sunday school teacher or some other kind of teacher. And, And then the Galilean Sunday school class came. This is the young marriage class. And they said, Johnny... They call me Johnny Steele. <laughs> would you would you consider our young adult class, the Galilean class? I said, well, let me check with John. He let me go, and I did that for the rest of my seminary time. And Professor Lazor said, would you be my assistant in Greek? Would you stand in for me when I'm not there and do Greek for me? I said, really? I don't know if I could do that. Well, I think you can. Try it. And little by little, people said, do more of this. Do more of this. Don't do that. You're no good over there. <laughs> Nobody ever invited me on to, I won't tell you all the kinds of ministries I've been rejected from. <laughs> but do, do some more of this. And, and so I went to graduate I, I finished seminary, didn't know what to do with when, when I grew up. I was 25 years old. And all my teachers got together. I mean, they didn't get together. They all gave the same advice. I said, what should I do? And they said, if you've got the energy, go ahead and get one more degree, then you can do anything. 
and that, that made sense to me. I mean, all the doors would be open, get a doctorate, and you can do anything. I said, okay, I've got energy. I'd love to do that because I love studying the Bible. So I went, now I'm 28 years old, got a doctorate, don't know what to do with my life. I said, Lord, really, I just want to handle the word and bless people. And one door opened, teaching Bible at Bethel College, and I walked in. So I got to Minnesota, go where the jobs are. And six years later, he got real intentional and said, no more just analyzing in class, teaching college students how to read. I want you to proclaim this God. You proclaim this God. I want you to take a people from the cradle to the grave and show a people this God is relevant. And uh, that's the I only tell that story just to illustrate how you discover who you are. You don't impose yourself. You don't show up and say, I'm here to do this. You offer yourself to serve wherever there's a need. And what you're good at will be recognized. People will fan that flame. People will, it'll, you know, put you aside. You're not, not good at that. It's kind of subtle, but <laughs> you get it. This is not helpful when you do that, but do more of this. Um, let's pass on to verses. How are we doing here? Two. Oh, we got to stop. Okay, that's a good place to stop. So, um, here's where we're gonna here's where we're gonna go. Lord willing, tonight. <laughs> I, I'm thinking that this is crazy to think this way. That we could really finish chapter 12 tonight <laughs> and do chapter 13 tomorrow morning. Well, that's a dream. You've been very patient after lunch. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful. For the Bible. We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit. We're so thankful that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We are so thankful for the hope of heaven and the escape from hell. We are so thankful for your sovereign grace, which can rescue the chiefest of sinners from their debauchery. Now, in these few hours we have before this evening, grant the rest and reflection we need to process some of these things and apply them to our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.